Welcome to Thriving with Dr. Nombeko. It's a great pleasure to have you with us today. In our show today, we'll be reading a memoir by the Deputy Chief Justice Museneke, my own liberator. Memoirs and autobiographies offers those with a teachable spirit the benefit of hindsight from those who have walked illustrious and remarkable life trajectories. Please get a copy of the book by Dikhang Moseneke, My Own Liberator. The book has been hailed as a fascinating account of the liberation struggle of Judge Museneke's trajectory as a young man who was incarcerated in prison in 1963 at the tender age of 15. In prison, Judge Museneke educated himself and he carved his own liberation until he was an attorney in our post-apartheid South Africa and he finally became a deputy chief justice at the constitutional court. Judge Moseneke is certainly someone that the youth of today can learn from. I started school in 1954 as a sub-A pupil, not in my home village, but away from my parents in a modest African township known as Bella Bella, the place of boiling springs. The little town and the white neighborhood were within walking distance across the railway line. It was named Varambad, rendered in English as warm buds. They were too near but separate communities. At that time, all local people had free access to the boiling springs after which the town was named. They revered them and believed their steaming hot mud and vapor could heal just about any ailment. In time, the municipality fenced off the natural springs and channeled them into three separate communal baths. The entrances were not to be confused and were signposted, Europeans only on the one and on the other non-Europeans, meaning that natives go through the one entrance and Indians and coloreds through the other. I had just turned six. My aunt, Masikwane Susan Musinege, was unmarried and had no children of her own. After her teacher training at Kilnatin, the only post she could secure was as a junior teacher at Mahabe Primary School, where the headmaster was a veteran teacher named Mr. Masimola. At the time, Bella Bella was a small black township with only a few rows of modest homes built by their owners. Unlike at my parents' home, Bella Bella had no electricity and fresh water had to be fetched in drums or buckets from communal taps at street corners. I hated the bucket system, and even more, the evening stench when the buckets were emptied from home to home into the municipality sewerage truck. 
My aunt knew that Dina had to be served well. Despite these difficulties, my stay and schooling were near idyllic. My aunt spoiled and loved me. She fed me until I was as round as a balloon. Little girls would burst into laughter and point at my shiny chubby cheeks. Evening after evening, I had to submit to additional tuition by my aunt before dinner and also by the man who married her, whom I fondly called Daddy Marka. He taught at Mahabe Primary School too. My part was to produce past grades at the top of my class. Daddy Marka was a tough rustic who had grown up on a farm and knew all about self-sufficiency. He procured a vacant residential site and every day after school, we made cement block bricks and slowly built our own five-room home. He read kettle in a nearby kettle camp, and in the mornings, early, before school, I would go with him to milk the cows. He thought I was a little spoiled and needed to be firmed up with rural living. He would walk me barefooted through the bush and show me by name every living creature, tree and shrub. He once held a snake by its tail and laughed as it got the better of it and then threw it back into the bush. His favorite prank was to take me on a night drive towards settlers' farms. He would stop his rattling old car and ask me to fetch him something out of the boot. Just after I had closed the boot, he would speed off and leave me in total darkness near the dirt road. I would cry and freeze with fear only for the lights of his car to return a few minutes later, beaming in my direction. I would cry and freeze with fear only for the lights of his car to return a few minutes later, beaming in my direction. He warned me never to tell my aunt about trips between men. I obliged. Before I knew it, I had survived my rural initiation and had passed down at two. In January 1958, I returned to my parents' home in Ashridgeville for my senior primary schooling at Banarang Primary School. Daddy Maka was a good man. My aunt rose to become principal of Mahabe Primary School and he served under her without visible rancor. Since they did not have children of their own, all my younger brothers, in turns, lived in his home, attended school at Mahabe, and had the same rural induction meted out to them. Our aunt succumbed. Our aunt succumbed to diabetes while I was on Robin Island. Dedimaka followed her several years later, and today they lie side by side in the Bellabella Cemetery. I was 10 years old when I started Standard 3 at Banarang. Bella Bella had grown me a touch ahead of my urban peers. I earned the highest average passes, close to 100% for all the four quarterly exams of Standard 3. Our principal, Mr. Mahudu Ramupu, promoted me past one class directly to Standard 5. He was most disdainful of the Bantu education imposed on black learners in the mid-1950s by the apartheid government. He thought its offering was well below the native intelligence of African learners. 
Every year, his school produced several distinction passes. It was liked and properly respected. My parents had no hesitation in sending me to Banarek. I fondly remember our morning assemblies. They started dead on time, 7 a.m. All the teachers will be in attendance and all the pupils will be in full school uniform, class by class, in ascending order, in disciplined silence, will lined up in a sermon circle. Mr. Ramopo presided over the scripture reading and morning prayer, and afterwards, at least once a week, he will tell us a fable attributed to Agri of Africa. His booming voice would float over the assembly. Once there was a farmer who kept a fowl run. He bred little chickens. One of his chickens was of an eagle whose mother had died and the farmer had saved it from its mother's nest. The eagle chicken grew up like the rest. The farmer wondered whether it would ever fly one day and soar as an eagle did. It never did. It stayed down and fed off the chicken food. One good morning, the farmer stepped into the far run and held the eagle chicken high, facing the sun. The farmer burst into a loud voice. You are an eagle and not a chicken. You belong to the sky. Look up to the sun and fly. He threw it up, but it dropped down on the ground. He lifted it up again the same way and urged it to fly, as it belonged to the sky. The little eagle stretched its wings and disappeared into the glare of the sun, never to return. Just before he dismissed the assembly, Mr. Ramopo would ask loudly, My children, you are? We will all shout back, Eagles, sir! In 1957, Ghana became independent and Mr. Ramopo would freely rehearse to us the teachings of Kwame Nkuma, the country's first president. As he dismissed the assembly, he would blow out in his ponderous tone. Kwame says Africa cannot be free until every square inch of Africa is free. Had Master Ramopo's progressive and prophetic teachings did not stay a secret. He began to be hounded by the security police. In early 1960, he fled into exile and ended up teaching at Saray College in Nigeria. His family followed or returned only after 1990 when apartheid was on its deathbed. One of his school staff members, Mr. Matimuza, fled to Tanzania. Later in 1963, another teacher from Banarang, Jafta Khalabi Jeff Masimola, would be arrested and charged as accused number one alongside me and 14 other student members of the PAC in the old synagogue in Pretoria. At the beginning of 1960, the regime, with less than pure motives, broke up Banarang and spread its teachers and learners across the schools in Atrishville. I ended up in the standard sixth class of Mbaweni Higher Primary School. The school, like others in my hometownship, bore the name of a community leader and educationist, 
Mr. Gordy Gumbawen. Significant leaders of the people were rarely forgotten. A few blocks away, a prominent primary school was named after Mangana Mukune. In November that year, I passed an at six with six subjects, distinctions, and an overall distinction aggregate. The school headmaster, Mr. Mkula, was well pleased, as was my class teacher, Mr. Khatz Komane. Both men have passed on, and both reach a ripe age after a job truly well done. They and other educators in public schools seem to have vowed to make their young learners whole beings. Theirs was a passive resistance against a bankrupt Bantu education. With all its security tentacles, the regime could not police teaching and learning in classrooms. Most teachers were not voluble activists, but they understood the formative attributes of their task. They could alter the course of the lives of their young charges. To that end, most of our teachers exuded self-worth and purpose, which they sought to pass on to their young wards. After all, one cannot discover one's innate dignity and remain worthless. In turn, the learners and the communities they serve reciprocated the respect. Teachers were adored. They taught us to think for ourselves, demanded hard work, and imposed discipline with all who were open to these things. It must be added that they also resorted sometimes over-enthusiastically to the biblical injunction never to spare the rod. Often parents of recalcitrant children at home will bring them to school for corporal correction. It was my inimitable headmaster, Mr. Mahode Ramopo, who bellowed at a morning school assembly. You have no business to be lazy when you are poor and oppressed. Your foremost task is to change your condition. Those were our teachers. They were educators to the boot. They earned little, and yet they gave us their utmost. By media, our class teacher had a start revision in all examination subjects. He had taught the prescribed material in full by the end of the second semester. In addition, each final year student had to read, bring to class, and review a public library book every fortnight. The reading extended to African literature. I digress to acknowledge that, despite the morbid designs of apartheid education, the silver lining must have been the space it allowed for indigenous languages. In theory, apartheid taught us that people are innately and immutably different. Their apartness is shown by how they look, speak, and live. One must speak, read, and cherish a home language. That language had a right to grow and flourish. In an ironic way, African languages and literature flourished. They were taught in schools, rightly so. An African learner had to pass a home language alongside the only two official languages of the time, English and Afrikaans. Sadly, apartheid abused rather than celebrated our diversity. It deployed outward differences to institutionalize inequality, exclusion, and greed. My home language is Sitswana, which was one of my examination subjects in Standard 6. 
I remember well how I enjoyed reading the meticulously crafted love story Mukwena by D.P. Muloto. I later turned to Saul Plachi's Dinsunsu Tabu Juliase Kesara, a Sitswana translation of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. L.D. Raditladi's Sitswana anthology Sifala Saminati boasted a glittering collection of poems, and one of the poems, Romo, I can recite. To this day, the teacher also insisted that we read a daily newspaper. We set up a kitty of one cent per learner for buying the daily. A learner had to read the main news items in the Black Daily, The World, and in the Pretoria News, a liberal paper with a readership of mainly urban white residents of Pretoria. On the morning of 22 March 1960, we arrived at school early. The daily had to be read before school started. We were assured that our future would indeed be bleak if we omitted to know what was happening in the world. But nothing had prepared us for that morning's read. We had been vaguely aware that the leader of the newly formed PAC Robert Mangaliso Sobukwe had called for a national protest against past laws on 21 March. He called on African people, whom the law compelled to carry passes, to leave their passes at home that day. They were urged to march to the nearest police stations to surrender themselves for arrest. The call by the PAC did not target students, and certainly not at primary school level. You had to be 16 years of age to carry a pass. So on 21 March, we went to school as usual, but nothing could have prepared us for the front page pictures in the newspapers of the following day. We approached the newspapers truly cold and unsuspecting. These were the days long before South Africa had television, and not only in African townships. The apartheid government actively demonized television and would not have it available or beamed into any home or place. All radio channels were owned and their broadcasts controlled by government. I was not likely to switch on the radio in any event. My father had long declared African language radio stations frivolous and stupid. The English main news broadcasts were just about tolerable if we were to wipe off a near total news blackout. I should rather read and read, my father insisted. There was no cyberspace yet and no world wide web, let alone anything like social media. The front page of the morning papers carried pictures of corpses lying in a street. The headlines were panic stricken, a massacre in Shopville. PAC protesters shot in cold blood. The two newspapers carried virtually nothing but columns of articles and gruesome images of blooded corpses and armed policemen. Pages that followed showed pictures of Philip Hosanna, a young student at the University of Cape Town, being carried shoulder high by his followers. He was said to have led 30,000 protesters in the African township of Langa in Cape Town. 
chilling fear and anxiety gripped our class of 12 and 13-year-olds beyond words. As we took our seats in our classroom, a ghostly silence fell over us. The rest of the junior classes were noisy, as they always were, before morning assembly. They did not know what we knew. That day, the morning assembly did not start on time. It was delayed as our teachers went into a harsh huddle in the staff room. Eventually, the assembly bell went and we all filed outside where the headmaster asked that we all pray for the people of Sharpville, Langa and Nyanga. He ended the assembly that morning by asking God to bless Africa. Shortly afterwards, our class read that the PAC, ANC, and the South African Communist Party, SACP, had been banned, that their membership had become unlawful, that the government had declared a state of emergency, and that many leaders of these organizations had been arrested and detained by the police. My parents did not say a word to me, their eldest son, about the Sharpville massacre, and yet a pall of pain and mourning came over our otherwise lively and jovial home. Both seemed to soak up the grief in silence. They woke up as usual and went to their respective schools to teach as teachers were required to do. I went to my standard six class to learn. A few weeks went by and calm seemed to return. On the last day of school in November, I returned home triumphantly. I gave my mother my statement of symbols. A distinction to come. She celebrated loudly and I could see the love and pride in her eyes. Later my reward came in the form of an ample array of cakes and desserts, all of which she had prepared in anticipation. My father looked weary when he came home after the train ride between Ashridgeville and Kudus Port, the railway station near Kilnatin, where he was teaching. When he was told about my results, he nodded his approval with no outward excitement, and I received a cut. Well done, Mugwen. His posture seemed to say, a good start, son, but this is chicken fit. There is a lot more to be done. So get on with it.